You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. As we've already noted, the Jews used the ceasefire in the War of Independence to great advantage. We're talking about the first ceasefire, and they used every ceasefire to their advantage. They were able to bring in more troops, move troops, and even train new troops. Even taking those off the boats, young survivors of the Holocaust, and pressing them into battle. In July 1948, by the time the ceasefire was over, the Jews had managed to double from a 30,000 armed force to 65,000 troops they managed to bring in armaments by boats and planes that they could not bring in during the British blockade. And very significantly, as we have detailed, they also managed to bring in an air force. Primarily, this air force was made up of American, British, and Canadian Jewish veterans of World War II who were pleased to contribute their abilities as pilots for the Jewish state, and their contribution was instrumental in the victory. More than 3,500 men and women from 43 countries participated in the Volunteers from the Diaspora Program, or Machal, during the 1948 war. South African World War II veteran Smokey Simon was a Machal Air Force pilot. Smokey was recruited by the Zionist Federation that had actively recruited World War II veterans for the impending war. Uh, we arrived in Israel on the 9th of May, 1948 six days before the uh, the war started we had no combat aircraft in israel at that stage um, and i did my first missions in these light aircraft where we actually carried the uh, the bombs on our laps and uh, then we had to uh, fuse them just before dropping them so you can uh, well understand that our uh, bombing wasn't very accurate at the time but nevertheless, it had uh, some military effect, and it certainly had a psychological effect. Machal volunteers participated in all military and medical divisions. However, the skills and experience required for flying combat aircraft created the need for outside help in founding Israel's new air force. Of course, there were a lot of Israelis who, who were being trained and so forth, but the air force was run entirely in English. In fact, up to September 1950. Israel used its creativity to make up for the lack of sophisticated equipment. When Israel started getting its, uh, its military aircraft, they were firstly the Messerschmitts, uh, which was really a very famous aircraft in World War II. But these were manufactured in Czechoslovakia, and they were, um, they were very inferior to the German-made Messerschmitt. But those were the only combat aircraft that we could get in the early stages. It was the Egyptian Air Force that was the greatest threat to the new state of Israel. When Israel acquired three B-17s, Smokey thought it was time to flex some muscle over Cairo. We got the, uh, the B-17s, three B-17s which were invaluable to the Air Force at the time. I was then Chief of Air Operations, I suggested uh, to the Chief of Air Force, uh, the late Aaron Remmers, that uh, we, 
I felt that we should use all three bombers to attack Cairo. And my rationale was that if such a minor attack could cause all the foreigners to leave Damascus, if we could send three B-17s over Cairo, that would have been a, uh, a very significant attack and, uh, and its consequences. So uh, we really went to, to uh, three targets, one over Cairo, and we really went for um, uh, King Farouk's palace. Uh, uh, we didn't actually hit the palace, we were pretty close, but the next day tens of thousands of Kyrenes also left the city after that attack. I was in uh, Minot, North Dakota, uh, partners in a used car and truck business. Money, girlfriends, cars, the whole uh, enchilada. When I got this uh, phone call from New York, I got a letter from a, a friend of mine at TWA, called this number and asked for Swifty. Just like that. So what the hell, I called the number. Livingston, where the hell are you? Been waiting a week for you. I said, waiting for me? Huh? Yeah, we need you right away. I said I'd wear a flying jacket, so a leather jacket, so they would recognize me. And they said to bring a logbook, a proof that I was a pilot. The meeting at a hotel on 57th Street in New York, the Henry Hudson Hotel, served great martinis. A fellow who identified himself as Steve Schwartz, apprising me of the fact that Israel was going to declare itself a state, that they were going to be attacked by at least five Arab armies, and they had no way to defend themselves, except that they had purchased some airplanes, but they had no one to fly them. And would I be in a position to help? The idea that Jews were going to fight, I found exciting. It's about time. It wasn't like a newspaper had joined the Haganah. It was illegal, of course. He said, look, I know there's going to be a war there, and I'm, I'm a fighter pilot, and I want to go there. And I had just made up my mind that nothing was going to stop me. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do this. The alternative is too hard for me to envision the possibility of what the Arabs could have done. And they talked about the fact that what Hitler did will be nothing compared to what we're going to do. You know, you're talking about 600,000 Jews and 50 million Arabs surrounding them. I didn't see how they could possibly survive. The Arab countries had established air forces. We had almost nothing. Four junk airplanes. Different propeller, different engines from uh, spare parts that the German Air Force left behind in Czechoslovakia. I remember sitting in the cockpit of my ME-109 wearing a German uniform, a German helmet, a German parachute. What's a nice Jewish boy from St. Paul doing in a place like this? The irony of it did not escape any of us. The Arabs had squadrons, they had planes, they had tanks, they had guns, they had everything, except that will to win that the Israelis had, that they had to win. He says, look, six miles from where we're standing now at the airbase is the whole Egyptian army of about 10,000 men, 
about 500 vehicles, tanks, trucks, and tankers, and we have nothing to stop them. I said, well, tomorrow I was going to go. He says, if you don't go now, they'll be in Tel Aviv in the morning and there's no Israel. These airplanes had never been test flown. They were assembled in the hangar, and they just started up, taxed out, and attacked the Egyptian army coming up the coast. the land of Israel. I looked there, I saw the enemy that came to destroy us. I just did a quick schmice royal, even though I'm not religious. Turn the airplane upside down because the dive bomb, the steeper the dive, the more accurate is the hit. I told Lou, this is about the dumbest thing that I'd ever heard of, and I would never have done it, but they stopped the Egyptians cold. I was born to be here on that moment of history to contribute to Israel's survival. I had done something good for once. We built an Air Force. We started an Air Force. If you wrote the history of the Jewish people a thousand years from now, there are two things that I can tell you will be in it. Um, one is the Holocaust, one is the birth of the State of Israel. The, the people who went to Israel and participated in this, in this effort were you know, really part of two of the most significant, incredible, devastating, tragic, uh, euphoric episodes in Jewish history, I, I think for all time. Shortly before I left, I happened to be in Tel Aviv when they were bringing in refugees from the death camps in Europe. I remember them getting down on their hands and knees and kissing the ground. I knew then and there that was the reason that I came. This did not just apply to the Air Force. Jews from all over the world scrambled to get Israel weapons. Thanks to their efforts, the sad state of the Israeli army without tanks or armed personnel carriers, etc., was rectified because of Jews all over the world bringing in arms and equipment that was needed. My father had a modest role in this effort. Having used the ceasefire to such great advantage, Israel, in the first 10, ten days of renewed fighting, was able to regain nearly all of the territory that she had lost. Yet the Arabs still refused to agree to peace. But the Israelis not only had secured all of their territory allocated to them, but they continued to push on conquering our territory, figuring that this additional land would be a greater security for the Jewish state and make the country far more, far more defensible. There still festers controversy over the battle for Lud, or in English Lida, a village on the way to Jerusalem which had 20,000 Arabs. Arab fighters and locals expected and prepared for an IDF, IDF attack. This battle occurred in Operation Dani, July 11th. Israel launched a major offensive called Operation Danny, named after an officer, Daniel, or Danny Mass, who was killed earlier in 1948. The first phase of Operation Danny called for Israeli forces to capture the cities of Lod and Ramla. These two Arab cities were strongholds for Arab Legion forces and were both located on the route connecting Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. 
Arab snipers and militiamen could pick off Jewish transport vehicles, which forced traffic between the two cities to a roundabout southern bypass. The operation to take control of these areas was a massive success. The Israelis seized the Lod airport and a strategic railway station in Ramla, as well as dozens of surrounding villages. However, it's important to note that during Operation Danny, some 50,000 Arab residents of Lod and Ramla were expelled from their homes. Daddy had captured the town and ordered the residents to report to the large mosque and church. Both structures were overflowing with people. The IDF allowed the women and children to leave. All agree about this. The Arab soldiers were barricaded inside the police station and there was a tense stalemate in the city. The next day, more fighters from the Arab Legion joined and sprayed bullets from vehicles in all directions. Arabs began sniping from everywhere, including from a small mosque in the city. The fire coming from the top of the mosque was very, very deadly, and the IDF was ordered to put it to an end. In the subsequent fighting, an anti-tank grenade was fired at the mosque, and civilians were killed. From this point on, there is no consensus in the accounts of what subsequently happened. The most scholarly works have concluded that the overwhelming majority of those killed were combatants, and there was no massacre. When the battle for Lud was over, the local Arab forces withdrew, and the IDF and Arab leadership reached an agreement that the population would leave the town and move to the east. This is one more example of how this war was creating refugees. Jews were fleeing from Jerusalem, Arabs in the north were fleeing by the tens of thousands. By and large, the Jews and Arabs pursued two very different methodologies. Zionist history records that the Jews expanded by buying land, not by killing. It was the Arabs who resorted to force and terror, like in Hebron and in Safed in 1929. That tradition did not stop with the word of independence and has continued until this very day. The first atrocity of the war occurred by Arabs in the slaughter of 39 Jewish workers in the Haifa oil refinery on December 30th, 1947. But the Jewish record is also not spanky clean. That is primarily because, as author Daniel Gordis notes, in a prolonged civil war, there are always reprisals and combatants tend to get brutalized. The IDF conquered over 400 Arab towns and villages and the Arab-Palestinians did not conquer even a single Jewish settlement other than Far Etzion, which was done in conjunction with the Jordanian Legion on May 13. And there, they committed large-scale massacre and rampant mutilations. This fact is really worth underscoring, repeating, and contemplating. The Israel Defense Forces conquered over 400 Arab towns, and there were no massacres, and innocent civilians were not harmed. But the Arabs conquered one Jewish settlement and committed a bloodbath. It is not hard to predict what would have happened had been more militarily successful. The War of Independence was a war of honor for the Arabs and a war of survival for the Jews. There were brutal acts on both sides, but all historians agree that on the Israeli side, brutality was the exception on the Arab side, brutality was the rule. After renewed fighting, once again the United Nations labored for a ceasefire. Each side used the ceasefire to bolster their positions, but the Israelis had sensed that the battle had shifted in their favor. The Arabs began to realize that the war to annihilate Israel 
had failed. A key turning point for the Israelis was a UN-brokered truce, which came into effect on June 11th. The truce was meant to be in place for 28 days, and it included an arms embargo. Basically, the idea was neither side was supposed to benefit from the truce. But of course, that's not what happened. Both sides used this time to improve strategic positions and import more weapons. Israel bypassed the embargo and brought in a massive shipment of arms from Czechoslovakia. Without that shipment, Yitzhak Rabin, then an IDF commander, later said it was very doubtful whether we would have been able to conduct the war. Israel increased its arms supply to more than 25,000 rifles, 5,000 machine guns, and 50 million bullets. Plus, with more Jewish immigrants arriving, they were able to almost double their manpower. During the War of Independence, there was an understanding between Israel and Jordan that outside of Jerusalem, where there was a genuine and bona fide conflict between the two sides, otherwise there was common interests. Jordan wanted to capture Judea and Samaria, as it was previously theirs, and Israel was not interested in it, and Jordan had no other interest in Israel. The other Arab armies, however, yeah, 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 they wanted the entire country so that none of it would be left for the Jews, prevent the Jews from ever creating a Jewish state. Before and during the war, as Professor Dan Palisar notes, Jews had the advantage of leaders. There were several leaders, but the most prominent was David Ben-Gurion, who was Churchillian in the equality and the strength of his leadership. He was able to look reality squarely in the face and understood that the Arab nations would not allow for the creation of a Jewish state. He recognized this as early as 1929, and with the conclusion of World War II, he understood that the Arabs would do whatever they could to prevent a Jewish state from arising. McGreen went about first acquiring the money, then the arms, then the training to fight against this eventuality. His colleagues felt that the old man was out of his mind. He was preparing for an air force and battalions and companies, divisions, tank columns and platoons when they were accustomed to fighting by hand in guerrilla warfare against local irregular gangs. McGreen understood that this was going to be a war to finish within a war to the finish with enormous resources required. Ultimately, Egypt which had led all the hype that this was not going to be a war, but a picnic, and in two weeks they would be destroying Tel Aviv, ended up having the vaunted Egyptian army suing for peace. By July of 1949, the last of the real holdouts, the Syrian government, also signed off on an armistice agreement. The main consequences of the war were not were that the Jewish state survived, and this was not as Dr. Polisar has noted, by far a given. It also, Israel that is, established a deterrence. And for years the Arabs were not going to attack again. They had seen an army that started with 30,000 end the war with 110,000. They saw an army that had started weak, ended the war with an air force, a tank corps, and with artillery. So after 1,900 years, the Jews had made their state a fact established on the ground. At this time, and this was no coincidence, Jews from Arab countries were expelled from their homes, and 700,000 Jews from Arab lands made their way to Israel to become their new home. For Jews and for Arabs alike, it was a period of horrific dislocation, and their bitterness on both sides would poison the region for decades to come. 
Both sides suffered, but what was uniquely Israeli and was increasing all the time was the ability to engage in self-critique. There are now 700,000 Arab refugees. They're composed of either those who had left on their own volition, those who had left because the Arab leadership had fled, those who had feared, had, pardon me, those who had heard false rumors of Jewish atrocities, and some that were pushed out by IDF troops. In these instances, Ben-Gurion really had no choice. Ben-Gurion's mission was to establish a Jewish state, and this would require creating a Jewish state without a large Arab minority. Otherwise, it would not have been viable. 700,000 Palestinian refugees, almost the exact same number of Jews who had to flee Arab countries coming to Israel, sought new homes in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Gaza. Ben-Gurion's government was against the return of the refugees to their homes unless it was part of a general peace settlement, which was a very remote possibility. Ben-Gurion told his cabinet on June 16, 1949, war is war, and those who had declared war on us will have to bear the consequences after they've been defeated. In the ceasefire discussions, the Arabs pressed Count Bernadotte to make the issue of refugees central to all negotiations and the Jews said that they would not discuss refugees as long as the Arabs continued to fight. The Arab position was that there could be no peace talks till all the refugee problems were solved. Essentially, this meant that the refugee problem would forever remain unaddressed. It was clear to Israel that Syria, Lebanon, and to a lesser extent Jordan, had no interest in solving the refugee problem, but just wished to keep them as Daniel Gordas, the author, has referred to them, as an ace in their pocket. There would be an asset that they would be able to use in future negotiations against the Zionist enemy, until Israel no longer existed. The cynical use of humans as a ploy, as a tool at the expense of the misery of the refugees, has yet to be condemned by the world. Then again, how could the world condemn it when all the attention is always on finding some reason to blame Israel for all of the region's ills. Bernadotte pressed that Israel just let the refugees back in, relinquish the Negev, relinquish Jerusalem, the Haifa port, the airport in Lud, which is today Ben-Gurion International Airport, and more. Not only was Bernadotte ignoring the fact that Israel was now winning the war, but his plan actually took away land that had been awarded to Israel in the partition plan. So that's all for this episode. Tell it from Jerusalem is getting great views thanks to you, our dedicated listeners. And yet and yet, we're still looking to expand, so kindly recommend Tell it from Jerusalem to those on your lists, to your friends, and they will surely cherish this recommendation. And please, affording a five-star rating advances the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, 
don't forget. You can get Telefon Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefonjerusalem.com.